Cassettes, and welcome back to another episode of the Black Case Diaries. Yo, 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 yo. Yeah. Yeah. We are hyped tonight. We are. I am Marcy, and I have with me... I'm Robin. And Adam. All right. So, tonight we are talking about cinematography. Yes. The one thing that everyone appreciates without even realizing it. Yeah. This is a really broad topic. So I'm really happy it's Marcy's week. <laughs> yeah, Man. this is going to be an interesting one. <laughs> I tell you, I was super excited, you know, looking up all the research for this one. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty daunting, you guys. Pretty daunting. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff, but we figured out as we were doing it, you know, that we're going to do a history of film episode. And we might even, we're going to do some, we're going to do lots of different episodes. <laughs> we decided, are. Yeah. Because we cannot cover it all in this one. <laughs> right. It would be, it would be a long episode. Yes. Yeah. Longer than they already are. So we're going to gloss over a few things, but know that we will go into depth into more specific items in other, other episodes. So stay, stay with us. You'll, and, you'll hear it. <laughs> and also please disregard the rain. Um, it's kind of getting quieter out there, which is really good, but if you heard some in the beginning of the episode, that's just because, you know, Marcy sits in front of a window, we have a mic yeah. pointing at a window. <laughs> Nature. You get it. Exactly. <laughs> we don't have a studio. <laughs> we have a spare room. <laughs> so. Cinematography, in its broadest sense, is the art or science of making motion pictures. Yeah. Pretty so, simple. Yeah, pretty simple. It actually comes from two Greek words. One is kinema, which means movement. And graphene, which is to record. Cinematography, it emphasizes what's going on in each scene, and it produces emotions out of us, out of the viewer. For example, Walter Murch, in his book, The Blink of an Eye, he says what they finally remember, as he's referring to the viewer, is not the editing, not the camera work, not the performance, and not even the story. It's how they felt. So essentially the job of the cinematographer is to make you feel the way that they and the director want you to feel. And if they've done that, they've done their job. We mentioned this kind of briefly, I remember in our movie scores episodes, that you know one of the main goals of music is to evoke emotion. And yeah. as far as cinematography goes and just you know movies in general that really is the whole point that's why they that's why genres exist you know because they make you feel a certain way like a horror movie makes you feel scared a drama makes you feel dramatic i (laughs) (laughs) you know a a comedy makes you feel happy and it's yeah it's about storytelling yeah yeah so cinematographers How did they come about? Well, they came about by Moybridge, was probably the first one. In 1878, he used 24 stereoscopic cameras with tripwires that a horse ran through to activate the shutters. Yeah. Everybody close your eyes. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, you should do it. Okay. Everybody close your eyes, unless you're driving, obviously. (laughs) And imagine, this is a time period where there is no film, there's no moving pictures, and uh, the legend goes, right, that, that there was a bet. He had a bet with somebody, and the bet was that when the horse runs, there's no point in time when all hooves are off the ground, right? And he was like, yes, there is. I'll prove it to you. I'm going to take a video. And so he pulled out his iPhone. No, and so <laughs> and so you imagine, like, any time, like, just imagine doing this. He took 24 cameras, 
that were all like brand new. Like this was mm-hmm. still already like beginning shit. This is the this is the new stuff. And he lines them up and he has a trip wire and the horse and you have and horses are really finicky too. So you're imagining this horse running through 24 different trip wires to activate the shutters on these cameras to create the first moving picture. Mm-hmm. It's pretty pretty crazy yeah you can open your eyes now. <laughs> it's, it's 2019 it's 2019 and you're yeah you're with your kids or your nephew or niece or somebody and you want to take a video of them on your on your phone and you just pull it out and you just press a button and that's all you have to do a little over like 130 years ago yeah or so i mean this yeah i guess when you break it down to that level you you really don't think about it a moving picture can't really exist in the same way they do in like Harry Potter world or something like that where they're literally moving it's a bunch of pictures in quick succession that make a video right I mean everybody mm-hmm. listening to this podcast knows that yeah but it's just like when you break it down to its essence it's always been about single images yeah which and is, which is crazy to think about that's all yeah sorry and this is also how our minds perceive motion too Mm -hmm. so it really only makes sense that that's how that would work because our minds take in motion as single frames and then our brains seamlessly put them together so the world everything that you see is a moving picture Mm -hmm. amazing cut done (laughs) all right we're our own cinematographers (laughs) in the movie of life (laughs) anyway keep going I just also want to say, like, that must have been expensive. Like, yeah. 24 cameras. Like, oh, it was yeah. new technology then. Like, that could not have been cheap. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my I gosh. wonder how many tries it took. Because you're saying a hor- horses are really finicky. Like, if mm-hmm. a horse ran through one tripwire, it'd probably, what the heck was that? I don't want to run anymore. Or I maybe it was like, oh, I want to run faster now. But, you know, wh- yeah, wh- I don't know. Did, it, did he nail it the first time? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. In, yeah actually uh, i was reading about it in a in a book and i can't remember the name of the book right now but and they were talking about it and actually the first time that the horse ran through it actually did feel the wire like mm. at least on like the seventh or eighth one mm-hmm. and it lost it i mean it went crazy it's, oh yeah you know it's oh, a horse it's, it, got, yeah. Yeah, it got scared by the fact that it felt the wire snapping and it spooked the horse so it was a little bit of a dangerous yeah because there was a rider on him mm-hmm. i believe yeah mm-hmm yeah, mm. yeah, and we'll link to it too, so you can actually see this moving image. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and he proved that there is, in fact, a yes. moment in time where all four hooves are off the ground, yeah. which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Okay, so there were a couple other people that we're going to mention that were kind of big names that are important for for cinema, and one of them is W. K. L. Dixon. He was an assistant to Thomas Edison, and he created the Ken kinetograph and the kinetoscope right so the kinetograph is it's basically like a video camera you know but it was one that was much more advanced than the cameras that moybridge used Mm. right so the but the so he you know basically created a better one (laughs) and then he created a way to watch those videos and that's what the kinetoscope was right if you've ever gone to any city science center you know, anywhere in the country probably has one of these. Um, I know there's one at Kosai here in Columbus where it has the fingers. You know what I'm talking about? In yes. The, 
and then you pose the hand however you want, and then you spin it real fast, and there you go. Yeah. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, it's essentially it. You know, it's honestly a little bit like a Nickelodeon <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, you know, you walk up to it, and you know, you it's essentially Nickelodeon. You'd put the money in. And then you would peer into a little window and you'd see the video or the movie in the viewfinder. And it, and it was only one person at a time could view it. Yep. So the next person who expanded upon that and made it so that multiple people could view at the same time was Charles Francis Jenkins. And he invented the Fantascope, which essentially is a projector. And he was the first one to get viewers. Yeah. Uh, talk about a badass name. The Fantascope? <laughs> yeah. Sweet as hell. Um, oh, yeah. And it turns out Charles Francis Jenkins was the first YouTuber yeah. personality. Because he got Ooh. the first views. He was the first person to get views. <laughs> yeah. So then the final person, or people, uh, that we're going to talk about are the Lumiere brothers. In 1895, they had the arrival of the train. But before, well, I guess I should say, before that, they had another movie. Um, and that movie was the first one where they actually got a paying audience. Yeah, it's like the first movie. Like oh, the first movie to ever. Okay. Because it was the first time that people were coming together, paying an admission, and then watching a presentation of a film of with more than one person in the audience. Mm -hmm. mm. They're, I mean, as far as we know, they're the first ones to do that. And it was because they created their own little projector type invention. Mm -hmm. uh, we we kind of laughed about how I pronounce this, but it's uh, <clears throat> it's like the cinematographe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I they were French, so yeah, the, it probably was that cinem or yeah. It's like essentially when I look at it, it's like cinematographe. I don't know. I guess that's mm -hmm. how you pronounce it. I do not speak French, and I'm really sorry to all the French people listening. That's awesome. They did that. And yeah. then um, they had, as I was saying before, they did a little short where it was the, it's called The Arrival of the Train. Mm -hmm. And that one is significant because <laughs> the people that were there for that kind of were scared of it. Yeah. They didn't expect this train because it looked like the train was kind of coming at them. Yeah, it kind of, it's coming a little bit at an angle. And it's, you know, from if you watch from the video, it's like almost, it's almost exactly straight on it at the viewers mm -hmm. in the audience. And, and I think there's even a scene in the movie Hugo, which is, I think came out in like 2012. It was like oh, a yes, more, more so. recent yeah. movie where they reference this and uh, the audience saw the train coming and uh, a few of them like ducked under their seats or ran out because they, you know, and that, I mean, that's a story that we're all right. told. They'd never mm -hmm. seen it before, so yeah. they thought it was a real train. They didn't really, and, and yeah, it's not so much that it was like, they thought it was a train, they just mm -hmm. didn't know what it was, and mm -hmm. they just didn't, like, their initial reaction was to just run from it, because it, it looked like it wasn't going to stop, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so it was like their initial, like, fight or flight kind of, you know, survival reaction was like, get away <laughs> from the thing that's coming toward us. So, you imagine being able to suspend your belief that much. Mm -hmm. We are so desensitized now. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I we, know exactly. What and you... they saw a video of a train. And they were like, that shit's real. <laughs> it's coming. And it was in black and white. They lived their yeah. lives in color. And this black and white train is coming at them. And they're like, shit. <laughs> oh, <my gosh."> <laughs> oh, no. Because <laughs> yeah. there were like people in the shot and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah strange. Mm -hmm. What is 
how different things are now. <laughs> yeah. Now we watch people murder each other on the screens and stuff. I and we don't know. even worry about we it. We don't even worry. John Wick, man. Just, oh, man. <laughs> you know? Oh, I worry my. about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> That's the emotion that they made you feel. Yeah. yeah. All right. So when we talk about cinematographers... They are also called directors of photography. Yeah. Those are just synonymous. It's it's basically the same thing. But a cinematographer is different than a director. Okay. A director can be a cinematographer, but that's not always the case. The director of the film has a final say in all the decisions regarding the film and how it looks. And they're the ones that are often controlling the actors. But the cinematographer, however, is usually the one, they're controlling the camera and they're giving inputs as to the best way to shoot the scenes using lighting, angles. And another way to word it is the director kind of decides what's happening and the cinematographer kind of decides how it looks to see it yeah mm-hmm. yeah at the end of the day the director gets to decide whatever they want yeah they have final the say but they have other people seeing it because you know more minds are better than one yeah. looking at the same thing or if you're too closely tied to your project you don't realize when things are bad or when yeah. things could be better yeah. until you until somebody else sees them from an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a director and you're really good at stage direction, like telling your actors where to be mm-hmm. and how to deliver their lines, and maybe you have a very good idea of how you want it to look, but you don't know the techniques to make that look happen. Mm-hmm. So you would need a good cinematographer so you can say, okay here's how I want the audience to feel about these characters. And the cinematographer can say, okay, well, I know what to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know I how know to, how to evoke that emotion by using yeah. these different angles and things. Exactly. So the other thing, though, is that a, so a director can also be a cinematographer. And a great example of that is Alfonso Curon. That's how I say his Orozco. name. Yeah. And he is the winner of the 2019 Oscar for Best Cinematography. For Roma. Uh, for Roma. And he's won Best Director and I think, I believe he's won Best Director twice. The cinematographer has a lot of things that they're thinking about, that they're having to pay attention to. One of the first things and one of the biggest things that they have to pay attention to is lighting. There are so many ways to light a scene. Just... You know, one of the basic lighting is whether you want it to be warmer, so either candle or tungsten, or if you want a cooler light, like a fluorescent daylight or moonlight. Right. Yeah. So that's that's like the basic, but it, there's also lighting techniques. Yeah. So different kinds of light have different temperatures. When I think of like tungsten light, I think of a parking garage. Mm. At night, when you walk out and the and the lights are orange, yeah, yeah. or or like a tunnel, a mm-hmm. lot of them are tungsten there to get yeah. that real orange mm-hmm. color. And then when you come out the other side, it's the opposite, and everything yes. looks uh, mm-hmm. everything has like a a weird bluey tone to it yeah. for a minute. 
Yeah, your eyes have adjusted. Mm -hmm. And because of color temperature, things can really be very deceiving looking and change. If you guys remember the dress. Do you guys remember the dress? Yeah. There was this big debate over whether a dress was blue and black or gold and white, I think, were the two colors. And because of the color temperature in the room and the way that the cell phone picture, you know, exposed the dress, people were seeing it two different ways. And and a lot of that has to do with that kind of lighting. Mm -hmm. So I just love lighting. It's really fun stuff to talk about. These two um, are photographers, <laughs> and they yes. took classes on them, and it's a real big deal, yeah. so they know a lot. And you know what? That's okay, because you two are passionate about it, so you need I, to yeah, talk, so, talk my ears off. Yeah, Marcy and I are both photographers. I went to school for photojournalism, so my photography classes were very different than Marcy's. Mm-hmm. Her skill sets were more in the fine arts area, and mine were more about journalism and that kind of thing. But overall we both learned about how to take good pictures and that's Mm -hmm. kind of really what it kind of boils down to. Yeah. So, which it's interesting now looking at films and being able to kind of see what, how they use lighting. It translates really well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing, you know, just saying the, the differences between like a fine arts and a journalism, uh, photographer in, in film, it's kind of both in a way. Because you can set it up, you know, mm-hmm. you get to set up the scene and what you expect to happen. But then at the end of the day, you do have to follow right. it. You do have to catch it, yeah. you know, so it kind of has both worlds in the same thing when and you create a scene. There's a lot of pressure when you have the ability to set everything up. Mm-hmm. Right. Because then people wonder, well, why did you... Why does it look crap Why does, why does it not look right? What's yeah. wrong with yeah. it? And there's so many technical things that you have to solve. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love Roma. So we're, we'll talk about Roma. <laughs> yes. Um, so some of the lighting techniques that we want to talk about, and this is just some really light, easy stuff, just some suggestions. Some like, some light light. Yeah, some light light. <laughs> light light. The key lighting. Key lighting is the main light source. So when you're watching a film, it's the, it's the, the light that's lighting the person the most. That's the key light. And it can be anywhere in regards to the subject, and it is positioned based on how well, how much you want them to be contrasted, or, you know, the worst place to put it is right next to the camera. Because when you put it right there, it makes the character, makes the person very flat looking, and it's just not dynamic, and it doesn't look mm-hmm. very good. Unless for some reason you want a character to look that way. Mm-hmm. For example, today we, Marcy and I saw Rocket Man, and in the beginning of Rocket Man, they show his town and his family and his people, and everybody in that in this in the scene looked very flat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's the worst place to put it, but you're going to have it wherever you want to put it based on how you want the subject mm-hmm. to look, right? So then there's fill lighting, which sits opposite of the key light. Fill lighting is what fills in the little shadows, right? So you're going to have two lights on somebody. One's going to be pretty bright, and one's going to be a little softer, and it's just going to kind of bring in some... Right, that, some lights. that way you don't have like, like dramatic shadows yes, on on exactly. the opposite side of somebody. Yes. I mean, unless you want that. That that's the thing about all of this is like mm-hmm. you get to decide this stuff. Yes, and these and these harsh techniques or these light techniques or these soft techniques, they're they're all going to decide how you feel about a character, and mm-hmm. that's really the goal of the cinematographer. Marcy was talking about you know them evoking emotion and that's that's how they do it mm-hmm. lighting is one of their biggest tools so then there's backlighting which is really cool it sits above and behind the subject and it sets them apart from the background this isn't this doesn't happen in every single scene but if you're going to do a very simple three-point setup this is the last one you're going to do mm-hmm. and it does set somebody f- apart 
from the background. So if you don't want the background to be very prominent mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Yep. Another example from Rocket Man today is that when he was coming through the doors, they backlit him. Yes. So you you just saw like the behind him just looked white or like you couldn't tell what was behind him really and you could just see him just walking through the hallway yes backlighting is a really if you use a really strong backlight you can achieve a really good silhouette mm -hmm. and uh that can you know be really cool or it could be not good <laughs> so there's side lighting side lighting is really cool because this is how you can achieve some really neat lighting techniques that are honestly very simple but they really make a difference in film and i think one movie that we'll talk about using lighting techniques is phantom thread so we asked on twitter for people to give us suggestions of movies that had good cinematography and one of our friends on twitter another damn movie podcast suggested phantom thread so there's a scene where they're sitting at a table, and I believe there's a lot of scenes where they're sitting at a table mm -hmm. in this movie, and they're arguing. And in this scene, both of them have side light on them. And it's pretty obvious, because in side lighting, what you have is usually you have one kind of strong source of light on one, on basically directly next to the character, right? So you have a lot of light on one side of the character's face. And on the other side of the character's face, sometimes you have no light at all, or you have a softer light or a weaker light right next to it. So one side of the face is going to look really light and the other side of the face is going to look like darker, kind of shadowy. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> this creates a really cool technique called Rembrandt lighting. Yeah. Well, what's, the, what's the fancy and word? Chiaroscuro. Yeah, I cannot say it. Chiaroscuro. It's a beautiful Italian word that I cannot pronounce. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so that word means light and dark, and it's very dramatic, you know, and that's the whole idea of the scene. And in the Phantom Thread, they're having this argument, and the woman, as she sits at the table, she has a brighter fill light opposite her side lighting that makes her face look a lot softer. But the man doesn't seem to have any fill light opposite his side lighting. And so the half of his face is very dark yeah. in a lot of the moments in the scene. You can only only almost see just like his eye a little bit. The yeah. rest of his face is pretty obscured. Yeah. Right. And you can kind of notice this technique. If you, if you look closely, there's usually a triangle yeah. shape of light on their on the opposite cheek yes. from where the light is coming there's from. There's a little bit of Rembrandt lighting on Adam right now. Oh, is there? Yeah, Look at that. Yes. So, yeah, there's usually an upside-down triangle on the opposite side of the face, and, and that really, like, that's Rembrandt lighting. When you're mm -hmm. watching a movie with your friends <laughs> and you see the triangle, you can be like, Rembrandt lighting! It's because it's very Renaissance-looking. It's yes. very dramatic. Uh. It's it, and, it, and, it, and you can tell when you're watching this scene, you're supposed to feel a certain way about him, Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to feel a certain way about her. And you can tell because of the difference in lighting. They're, they're sitting at the same table in the yes. same room, but they lit the characters differently only so that you have different mm -hmm. emotions. And it, it works. Yeah. 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 More sympathy for her, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. we... Yes. We'd like to note we've never seen this movie before. We have only seen that one scene. And we got all this information just from watching right. it. Right. It, 
just from looking at it, we could already tell that they were not getting along. Yeah. The man was <laughs> a lot more mean about it, whatever their conflict was. The moment was. the scene began, Adam said, okay, they don't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and that's, I mean, they did their job. That's exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. They made exactly us right. feel a certain way. Right. So, uh, also, if you guys ever notice, some sh- animated shows are so detailed, they'll even animate an upside-down triangle on faces, sometimes mm-hmm. in lighting, especially Avatar The Last Airbender. They do it all the time. <laughs> I just want to mention that. So, after side lighting, there's practical light, which was also used in the Phantom Thread scene. Mm. It's used in a lot of scenes. Practical light are light sources that already work. Lamps, candles, that kind of thing. and Or TV. You know, sometimes, you know, there are lots of scenes in movies where someone's just sitting in a chair and they're lit, their face is lit by the light of the TV. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, a lot of the time these things can be modified to make it look like the lamp is giving off that light, you know, but they'll add little uh, tools inside it to make the, the light brighter or lower. Because generally it's hard to light a scene with just these things and they're mm-hmm. going to they're gonna try to add other things. But, you know, in some cases... They'll, they will just use lamps and candles or whatever. Right. One that I always think of, I, I don't have a specific example uh, from a film, but th- whenever it's just like somebody, sit, like you said, sitting in front of the TV, they're in a chair, mm-hmm. and the only light in the room is the TV, and right. it's kind of flickering on yeah. them a little bit. But if you look, like the, the camera is above the TV looking at the character, you can still kind of see the rest of the room and if it were just lit by the TV only, then you'd probably barely be able to see the person, let yeah. alone the rest of the room. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely some soft, cool lights in there, you know, helping out. Yes. But really, it still gives the the idea that the only light in there is the TV. Mm-hmm. And these things, like these candles and lamps, a lot of the time they're added by set, set designers, mm-hmm. too. <laughs> After that, we've got hard lighting. Hard lighting... Everybody knows what this is. It's like really bright light with dark shadows. It's kind of hard to look at in some at some points, but it's also it has use. You know, this is like a lot of the time it's caused by the sun, really bright sunlight. In westerns, they use this light, uh, especially when they fight at noon. Yeah, I was gonna say. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say it. Whenever I see it, it's like wow. It's like the desert, or it's really hot. Wherever they, wherever they are, the smaller a light source is, the harsher it's going to be, and that's why high noon is such a hard time of day to take pictures or to to fight, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to have a little gunfight because in it's that's you know because the sun is at its highest point in the sky, and uh, so it's going to be as small as possible, and it's going to give off the the harshest light because it's the smallest source of light, and that's why you want to make your light sources bigger when you're taking any photos. This is just some friendly photo advice. Mm-hmm. Anybody out there trying to take pictures, you know, use soft boxes, use reflectors, use bounce the light, use something that's going to make the light source bigger, and that way it's more flattering. So we're gonna there you go, Instagram influencers. <laughs> so soft lighting, this is the opposite. This is when you use big light sources. Uh, the opposite of high noon would be a cloudy day, right? Mm-hmm. When the sky is just one big soft box and everything is pretty evenly lit, that would be a great time to take pictures. Mm-hmm. If you want it to be cloudy on your wedding day, that's a great. That's great. It's mm-hmm. great for photos. You have yes. the best pictures. <laughs> yes, you have the best lighting. Not rainy, just cloudy. Cloudy, right? Yes. <laughs> 
So, in you know, that's it eliminates the harsh shadows, and that's really good. Bounce lighting, I just mentioned bouncing. It's essentially basically just trying to achieve soft lighting, but by using bouncing techniques. Me and Marcy use bounce lighting all the time. Yes, we do constantly. Yeah, <laughs> whenever just... we use a flash, we always right. we always bounce. I was gonna it. say if you have a real small light source, yes, and that's all you have, but you need softer light, then you bounce it off something. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. bounce it off umbrellas. You can bounce it off just reflectors. Mm-hmm. You can use walls and mm-hmm. ceilings, ceilings, and that's yes. something that they use a lot in cinematography. <laughs> so oh, that's bounce lighting. So then there's high key. So when a bright scene, it it's visually shadowless, right? So this is, you know, when you imagine, I don't know, maybe Baywatch or um, <laughs> or someone in a desert, this is really, you know, this is yeah. a good example of it because you don't really see shadows. It's very mm-hmm. bright and it is almost overexposed. I picture holes. Holes mm-hmm. is a good example. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, is the wol- that latest Wolverine one that came out? Logan? Logan, yes. Did that, is that? Yeah, That's, I'd say that probably. I yeah. think so. Okay. Yeah. I'd say so. And, you know, they're like sitcoms use it a lot Mm. um because a lot of the time this kind of technique actually makes it seem cheerier and brighter and happier and you want people to kind of have a happy feeling from a sitcom so a lot of times sitcoms are lit this way and uh, the technique actually started in the 30s because back then film wasn't really able to catch like varying contrasts of light and so because of that, they had to just light everything and just mm-hmm. make it all bright mm-hmm. and kind of because they couldn't really capture it, you know, until a little bit later. And then they started to use contrast like a mofo, like, yes. right? Like <laughs> so much. We we talked about um, The Wizard of Oz a couple of episodes ago and how how many lights they had to have in there. <laughs> yes. Not only because they needed that cheery feeling of Oz, but they, you know, the yeah. color Yes. That they mm-hmm. were working with needed oh, yeah. a lot of light, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then there's the opposite of high key. There's low key. And when I think of low key lighting, the best example that I can give you guys is imagine when you're a kid and you're sitting in a closet with your, or sitting in a closet or in a dark room with your siblings or friends, and you take a flashlight and you put it under your face and you start telling a spooky story, right? That That's what low key lighting is. It's mm-hmm. when they're using shadows to tell the story more than using light to tell the story. It's making things look as dramatic as possible, creating mystery and suspense. Ah, like the Blair Witch Project, for example. That's cool. Yeah. So when you have like, you know, a lot of the time it's the key light and there's only one light and it, you know, is used in such a way that it's meant to just create shadows. Yeah. I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. That's really cool because, yeah, you're right. It's the shadows that that are what's noticeable in something like that because if you... Uh, I think this was in a, a TV show or in a movie or something where somebody was showing that off. They put the flashlight above them and they're like, oh, it's happy, sad, happy, yes. sad, or, or uh. you know, <laughs> something like that. I can't remember. But uh, but you can see the simple, the simple difference in moving the light from the top to the bottom changes the shadows and then thus changes the, the mood. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's uh, there's motivated lighting. Which is really cool. We were talking about the TV, you know, in the example of using a TV as just a source of light. But in motivated lighting, what you're doing is you're trying to create the, the light of a TV without using a TV, right? There, maybe you'll have your actor sitting in front of the TV and then uh, you'll actually have it on. But you have the lights, you're using lights in the studio to make it look like it is on and it's, and it's brighter than a normal TV would be. Or you're trying to create moonlight or you're trying to create... 
street lights outside or you're trying to create, you know, stuff like that. That's motivated lighting. And then, you know, ambient light. We all know what ambient light is. Yeah. Photographers, photojournalists use it all the time. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about it when it was raining earlier. Yes. Yes. Ambient light is, the yeah, it's just using the light that's there. Yep. Which this is a good time to mention that the first cinematographers and everything, they typically didn't have a lot of lighting options, really. They had to use ambient light. And as technology grew and people were able to make these different kinds of lights and everything, cinematography grew as well. But it was probably very hard for those first people. They had to shoot during daylight hours and try to find yeah. ways to get light in without using, <laughs> or maybe using candles and things like yeah. that. But another thing that cinematographers pay attention to is their camera and what, how stable it is. So cinematographers can use a stabilizer, so that way they can keep the camera very still when they're taking a shot. Um, but they can also use it handheld, where you get kind of this shaky kind of effect, because yeah. obviously as you move, the camera's going to move a little bit. If you've seen behind-the-scenes footage of like action movies and car chases, there's this huge boom coming off of mm -hmm. another car that has to follow along with the action. That crane has a stabilizer on it because there's mm -hmm. all these real smooth shots. There's no way riding in a car you're going to be all bumping up <laughs> yep. and down. And you're never going to be able to hold that camera steady. No. So they have to use a stabilizer there. And one more thing that I always find funny, if you ever look at um, birds, the way the birds walk, they have like built-in stabilizers in their yeah. head. It's kind of bizarre. Like if you hold a bird, it works really well with chickens. If you hold it, and then just move the body around. The head's gonna stay right in the same spot. <laughs> it's oh, it's man. super weird, but that's like look up a video of that, <laughs> and then oh, that's what a camera like a stabilizer eyeball. is doing. Yeah. I mean, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So along with that, you just want to remember that using those decisions makes your you know you can choose one for a certain kind of emotion. Do you want it to be steady? Do you want you know a good look at the the Thing that you're you know videoing or yeah. do you want it shaky is there is you know or is it supposed to be unsettling or yeah. like something like that is it do you want it to be and sometimes it's a question of do you want the audience to notice that you're moving the camera mm -hmm. you know a lot of the time you'll, their movies will be filled with with panning shots or tracking shots with all kinds of things like that and when they when they do that uh, a lot of the time that audience does not realize it's happening because they're focusing on the movie and, mm -hmm. and the character and what's, you know, but they're, but they're still reacting to what they're seeing, even though they don't realize that they're being directed to see things a certain way. A good example we saw of this uh, movie suggested by Bang Average Movie Podcast, Citizen Kane. Um, oh, yeah. If you haven't heard of that one, what, what are you doing? Yes. Um, but there's a scene <laughs> where two men are talking but it's a long, continuous shot with no cuts. Yeah. And that's not, that in itself isn't very uncommon. There are a lot of times where they'll have a one long, continuous shot. But in this case, it was placed in a way and moved around, not shaky. So yeah. there, there must have been some kind of stabilization, but it would move in a way where it felt like we were sitting at the table too. 
Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It almost felt like, you know, he'd lean in, the camera lean yeah. in a little bit when they got closer. It When they stood up, the camera just followed them up like we stood up too. And it's mm. that kind of... Uh, yeah, when, you know, when you got to a point where you realize that he's about to make a point or mm-hmm. he's about to say something important, the camera did not cut to his face. It worked its way across the room to his face. And it wasn't necessarily like a zoom in. You know, you kind of felt like you were moving with the camera. Mm-hmm. It was, it, and, and that's, you know, it's definitely a little bit of an older style because today, uh, anyone watch a movie, watch an Avengers movie and, <laughs> and count and watch one scene and one scene of the movie and then count how many cuts there are. I'm telling you, there are a lot of cuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of them. Yeah. A lot of those big budget action movies tend to use cuts. Yeah. A lot. Same thing with like Transformers is notorious for having too many cuts almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you start counting them, you might start to get a headache. So yeah. if, so, if you start to get a headache, stop. Stop counting them. Just watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Another thing that's paid attention to is color. Color or lack thereof mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are both very important things. Yeah, um, so it could be any, a simple thing as to what the col- the characters are wearing. It could be the color that they're wearing. Or it could be the color of what's surrounding them. Because, you know, the color could be really prominent. Or it could be like a desert where there's not much color at all. Yeah. Things like that. Good examples of this are like in Schindler's Lists. Yeah. Where the little girl has a red coat. It's a black and white film. And there's just a girl with just a red coat. Schindler's List is a great example of it because, you know, you were obviously very much meant to pay attention to that child and to, you know, you your your brain kind of follows her throughout the film and you, you understand, you know, what probably happened to her. And, you know, it, so it, it helps to kind of tell that story without ever using any words or any kind of explanation. You, you can figure it out. So there's that, but then there's also one example that I want to talk about maybe is the the promo, the trailer for Avengers Endgame. When the trailer came out, what they did was they um, they showed like kind of cuts or scenes from the older movies and they used black and white and color together to emphasize certain things to get people to feel a certain way about the movies. Do you guys remember yeah. what I'm talking yeah. about? Yes. Okay. I remember because when I saw the trailer, <laughs> it reminded me of when I took a Photoshop class as a, a junior in high school. Because um, <laughs> that's exactly what everybody did in Photoshop. Very back then. simplistic. Yeah. It was everyone just picked, you know, everyone did that. Everyone mm-hmm. took a picture where they made everything black and white except one thing. And and that that's something that, you know, in that trailer. And I remember that really was an effective way to market the movie because people were really, really excited about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another example that popped into my head. Do you guys, I think it was a Pixar short. Or it was either a Pixar short or just a Disney short, um, where it was the two characters were umbrellas. Yes, you remember this? Oh mm-hmm. yes. All of the no- all of the regular, not yeah. meant to be noticed umbrellas were all black, but then the two characters, one was blue and one was red. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you knew exactly immediately, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, those are the two that are important. Yeah. Those are the two that we're going to pay attention to. They do that a lot in anime as well. Like the main character will have a, a different color hair, right. or something like that. That's the person we're supposed to follow. That's the one that we're supposed to pay attention to. All it is, is just a different color. Yeah, mm-hmm. and color sometimes, too, is something that is really paid attention to by costume designers. And hopefully we'll do an episode on costume. Oh, yeah. Yes. Sometime also. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Another way that uh, color has been used, we talked about Fiddler on the Roof in our musical 
2 episode, I believe. In that one, the director had wanted kind of this brown hue for the entire movie, this brown color. And so Oswald Morris ended up using pantyhose over the lens, brown <laughs> pantyhose to to give it that kind of brown yes. and gray type dirty tinge yes. color to it. Yes. And so you uh, because of that you can also kind of see like a faint grid type texture if you look on really some closely, of the scenes. Yeah. Yes. So that's another way that color color is used. Yeah. All right. So then our last thing that is paid attention to that we're going to talk about is composing the camera frame <laughs> and the movement that you use. So under this, there's things like high angles, which give you the illusion of power. Low angles, which is like kind of the weakness. You can have crooked angles where it's off kilter, and so it gives you an unsettling vibe. There's depth of field, wide lenses, close-ups, all those different tricks that you can use with the lens yeah. and, and the camera in order to give it a certain emotion. It, they use these same techniques in animation a lot too. It's not just with a camera, but you can draw these techniques too. And one that springs to mind is the scene from Alice in Wonderland where she's on trial with the Queen of Hearts. Mm. The Queen of Hearts is way up on this judge yeah. stand, and every time she's you see her, she's going down off with her head down on top of her, and then Alice is in this little booth thing next to it, looking up at the at the queen of hearts and it's the same thing you do that with a camera or you draw it that way and it one is mean and powerful yeah. and just yeah. taking control and one is like yeah, help so <laughs> i liked that <laughs> yeah. i mean if i were in that situation i mean yeah <laughs> yeah there's i mean there's a lot of great movies where you know there are these really intense close-ups on faces mm -hmm. and I, I love that stuff and you know it it's really great because a lot of the time it adds variety to the movie and it's really nice to see variety and for not th for things to not all look exactly the same throughout mm -hmm. the whole film. When I was in school, for example, we would learn, we would do some stuff called like picture story. And, uh, you know, the idea was that you had to tell a full story through images no with no words and you had, and, you know, throughout your take, you needed, it was like, usually it was about like, seven to nine images and you needed a wide medium tight detail establishing shot like you needed all of these different things in the picture story so telling a story through just images is very difficult it's a very hard thing to do but you know when you use these tools it's you know it's a little bit easier okay we're gonna take a little break right now and i want to know do you enjoy the black case diaries well if so the PodCoin app pays you to listen to this podcast and every podcast. It's the podcast player that pays. Just get the app free on iPhone or Android. You can use the PodCoin you earn to claim gift cards or donate to charity. Use our invite code BLACKCASE, all in caps, and you'll get 300 PodCoin right away. Also, earn PodCoin faster by listening to bonus podcasts like the Black Case Diaries and others. Cinema is basically a language, essentially, because it uses all these tools that we just talked about, and it has kind of almost rules for these these tools. Just like language has rules, and it uses letters, words, sentence structures, paragraphs, all those things to convey meaning. Cinema 
uses its own structures like lighting, the shots, the shot sequences, all, all that stuff combines to create this cinema language. And there's often, it's not really hardcore rules, no. but when you use them a certain way, people are going to convey them yeah. that certain way. So you got to be careful on how, how you use these tools. Yeah. There's a lot of science about how to set up a photo or a frame in a film and the way people's eyes are going to go throughout and being able to see. You know, there's there's yeah. the golden ratio. There's rule of thirds. Yeah. There's lots of different things. And uh, uh, creative devices are really, really cool ways of changing up the images and ha- helping you tell stories without words. Yeah. So, you know, some of them I, I listed just, you know, dominant foreground and contributing background. That's one of my absolute favorites. <laughs> and uh, I, whenever I think of this being used, it's not in a movie, but there's a TV show that some people might have heard of. It's called Breaking Bad. And just, no. just a little independent show. That, heard of it. <laughs> um, so, so not well known. I yeah. don't know what you're talking about. And yeah, they use this <laughs> technique all the time. And I loved it so much because it you know i can think of very specific moments there's there's a moment in the show where jesse pinkman is pulling a dead body he's pulling it inside the house and you know someone comes up to the fence to talk to him and there's a shot where you see the car with the dead body in front of it and then him talking to the person at the fence who has no clue you know the dominant foreground of the body and the contributing background of him talking to the person you know he's obviously in the middle of something and um (laughs) it was not you know and you could just turn on your tv right there and you know you know what's going on and like that kind of thing that's you know that stuff is really it's really effective storytelling you know detail shots i love detail shots too because they're very that's like when the camera gets uncomfortably close to something <laughs> to a point where you know what i mean where mm-hmm. we yeah. you know we would not get that close but the camera does it for us mm-hmm. so it's fine you know a lot of the time a lot of artistic movies might have really tight shots of faces yes. and sometimes people will get a little uncomfortable with it yeah uh, or times when um people whisper into yeah. somebody's ear they get incredibly close yeah and yeah uh, even even with sound too um <laughs> And you just feel that, like, ooh, I feel it in my ear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, get away. Yes. Robin and I were talking about Roma earlier today, mm-hmm. and she mentioned a, a very particular scene in which this is used. Um, yeah. It, it's the scene where the husband is uh, parking the car in the garage, and it's a very tight, <laughs> very tight garage <laughs> that he's trying to squeak buy into mm-hmm. and the camera gets very close up on the front grill of it so yeah. uncomfortably close yeah oh, the wow. camera's sitting in front of the car and the car is coming toward it and it just keeps coming and coming and then it fills up the whole the whole screen and of course because it's roma it holds on to it, it this it <laughs> holds on to it for a bit you're not you know the, it doesn't cut really w- away from it quickly you're you're sitting there staring at the grill of this car you know there are other things silhouette is a good one. We talked about silhouette a little bit already. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a great scene with silhouette and Rocket Man that we saw today. We yeah. didn't mean to like talk about Rocket Man, but we ended up seeing it today. So it's on our mind. Yeah. <laughs> you know, reflection is a really, really big one. You know, in the newest season of Stranger Things, mm-hmm. there's a moment where Hopper is stuck in a in a room of mirrors and he's holding a gun. Right? Is he going? And same with the the big baddie of the season is also in there. You know. And that scene is all about reflection and about tricking your eyes. A good example of 
the silhouette before we move on to the next one another damn movie podcast also suggested there will be blood and um there's a shot there that we saw when we looked at the through these uh movies where the main character was sitting in a room and a train was leaving the station and the shot was behind them facing out the window so that light coming in from the window was incredibly bright and created a silhouette of the characters sitting with yeah. their with their cowboy hats or their like whatever those kind of those hats they were wearing and so they created a real nice silhouette as you could see in the background as the train was leaving and each time the light would come through each individual window it was a really cool shot there too. So that's a really right. good example of. And the there's silhouette. a lot of there's a lot of mixed lighting in that scene. That's yeah. really cool. You've got it's kind of golden hour outside, so his face is kind of lit in this gold light as you know as the train takes go, goes away. Uh, rule of thirds. Everyone knows about rule of thirds. I'll just skip it. Yes. Uh, so, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, rule of th- rule of thirds is really important. It's when uh, you are looking at a frame, even just a photo or a movie, uh, you imagine the frame cut into three equal pieces, right? And you don't want things to be centered unless you do want things to be centered, mm-hmm. right? Unless mm-hmm. it's a filming technique, something that you're trying to do specifically for that movie. But a lot of the time, you don't want things to be directly in the center. It's a very, it's a very static. It's a very boring place to put something unless there's a reason that you have right. something centered in the film. And so, you know, the idea is you're going to try to keep things to the right or the left of center. It works It works vertically, too. You know, you want to keep the frame split in three. You know, imagine just a grid over the photo and, you know, figuring out where something should go. Mm-hmm. If, if you think that your photos look bad, try following the rule of thirds and it will increase the quality yeah. of your photos tenfold right yes there's also things like leading lines you know mm-hmm. you want there are so many just little things about photos that you know if you try to think about all of them when you're taking your pictures you're or doing your doing your cinematography you know it, it might feel a little daunting but you know it's really good to keep them in mind the brightest part of an image is where people are going to look first mm-hmm and uh, using leading lines is a great way of getting the person watching to look at what you want them to look at. A lot of the time, I'll see uh, young artists using, like teenagers, I mean, you know, using mm-hmm. railroad tracks as leading lines, right? Mm-hmm. They'll take pictures on railroad tracks. And that's the idea is that there are lines or literal lines in the image that are pointing to what you want everyone to look at. Mm-hmm. A slow pan. Pans are very, very big. They're a very important part of making film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. uh, there are there's equipment specifically built for panning, and that's it. Panning <laughs> is tough if you don't have the right equipment. Yeah, it's very hard to do it smoothly unless you have exactly the right thing to do it with. But yeah, panning is a great way to you know, like you're taking their face. Imagine <laughs> like you're, you're grabbing them by the chin and you're telling them where to look. That's I mean. Yes, that's, a, that's what it is. You're mm-hmm. sweeping, sweeping in them, their eyes across the across the page, but you're doing it screen. in a smooth yes, way. Yes, you're doing it smoothly, and they heart, they don't even notice. No, you're no, touch of an angel, really. No. <laughs> all right, so now that we've talked about all these different tools and not quite the equipment, uh, we didn't talk about specific types of cameras or, or types of lighting per se, but. 
it, the equipment doesn't really have to be perfect. It has to match what the cinematographer wants the feel of the movie to be. You want to use whatever equipment will get across that emotion. Right. I mean, if you're going to make a movie and the only the only lens you have is like a fisheye lens, don't make the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Unless don't it's do just it. your friend skateboarding that's or something. exactly what I was going to say. Unless <laughs> yeah. it's a skateboard movie, then you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you don't have to the best stuff. But make sure it's just, you know, it, it's going to fit your vision. You know, that's what it is. Like, don't get equipment just to have equipment. Get the equipment if you know what you're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So talking about equipment, we have some lenses here. Lenses are the keystone of the camera, if you will, because it's how the camera's going to capture the the shot. You know, yeah. the, the, the lens affects the shot probably the most of anything. But we have some cool examples here. We mentioned the fisheye lens. Super, uh, kind of a super wide angle used for like panoramic stuff landscape shots or skateboarding if you're a rad cool dude right <laughs> its focal length is like lower than 15 millimeters yeah that's that's wow. pretty close yeah so yeah. that's that's pretty and that is wide kind of the way to recognize it if anyone if they use it and anyone gets real close to it their nose yeah. is like super <laughs> rounded and everything is just like a circle around their close-up face yeah that's probably a fisheye lens yeah, I think of a Beastie, the Beastie Boys music video. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Where there you, go. you know, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Fight for your right. <laughs> yeah. I think they use it in that, and they get real close into the into the lens, and that they definitely used a fisheye. Oh that. yeah. And the rest of the room is kind of rounded, rounded. around them. Oh yeah. man. Um, but the next one we have here is just your normal wide angle lens, mm-hmm. which is a lot less dramatic than than a fisheye, but it kind of does the same thing. This is more for establishing an interior or, um, a, again, like a landscape, something like that. Or it can be used, um, a lot of times used to shoot architecture shots if you're just talking about photography, if you want a building to look nice in its surroundings, something like that. And then standard, pretty standard. I mean, right. This this one, um, I don't. What's the focal length of a standard? I'd say I'd say about fifty millimeters. Okay, mm-hmm. would be fifty so, to like fifty to seventy. Okay, so like yeah, so you're looking to to do something like maybe portraits or or just your regular shot. If you don't need anything special about it, if you don't need to evoke emotion via the lens, and you're doing something else with the scene, then you're more than likely going to use just a standard lens. Yeah. But then we have a zoom lens. This one is on most digital cameras that you buy at the store. Mm -hmm. It's something like this. Yeah, it usually comes with a kit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a kit lens. Yeah, and you'll, you know, you spin it and it extends or retracts. And then you get closer or further away. Mm -hmm. In terms of cinematography... This is used a lot of times in documentaries, specifically for wildlife, a, lo- a lot with the telephoto lens too, because you can't be very close to your subject, so you need to mm-hmm. be able to zoom in on it so you can get that detail without putting yourself in danger. Right. But it will also be used for you know some of those tight close-up shots rather than using the next one on here, a, a macro lens, which is incredibly close-up shots. Because it's you know made for things that are very small yeah. or, or made to get a lot of detail out of something like if you shoot a tablecloth or something with a macro lens you'll be able to see the stitching in it Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff or if you want to see the pores on somebody's face like we talked about the 
the detailed shots yeah. that really make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> you might use a, mac- a macro lens to get some of the that uh, really close-up stuff, like a bead of sweat dripping down somebody's face or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a telephoto lens. That this one is basically a zoom lens, but you don't have control. <laughs> yeah, it's like a prime. A lot of a lot of telephoto lenses are prime lenses, which means you can't change the focal length. Ah, okay. And so what you would, for example, when you have a seventy to two hundred, that's a telephoto slash zoom lens, you know, because that one is still kind of heavy. It's still kind of big. But if you had one that was like a seventy to three hundred. That was, you know, a smaller zoom lens. Like, you could hold on to that. You can, you know, change the focal length, and it's not as heavy. But if you have a 300 millimeter lens that's prime, it is huge. It's heavy. You have to carry it on your shoulder. Like, it's, yeah. it, um, you know. If you if you watch on TV any sporting event, like specifically like football, yeah. where there's people on the sidelines, if you look at all the people with their cameras, mm-hmm. a lot of them have those big <laughs> telephoto lenses. Yeah. Um, but but in terms of cinematography, mm-hmm. these are they're not used all that often. Um, but you know it would be real far away stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, like sports or or more wildlife stuff, documentaries, those kinds of things, where you you need to see something close up, but you can't be close up. Yeah, yeah. If if a director was using a telephoto lens on set like a 300 millimeter, they would have to be so far away from the subject. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that'd be, insane. That'd be kind of funny it's to just, watch. It sounds like a telescope, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder that's if that's idea. kind of what they named yeah. it after. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like an example would be, I suggested Lord of the Rings on our little Twitter thing. Um, there are a lot of shots in Lord of the Rings that are shot from a helicopter. Not all of them are using telephoto lenses, but some of them are because the helicopter can't be, super close to the yeah. the subjects because you'd see it affecting the grass on the ground or sometimes in, if it's a big enough helicopter, it would be blowing the people around, you know? <laughs> Gandalf would lose his hat or something like that, you know? So they have to use a, a much bigger lens to be able to get close to them, walk, you know, running along the top of the mountain, um, but still being in the air. You know, they, had to, they couldn't get close, but they needed to be closer. And I think yeah, uh, Lord of the Rings smart. has a lot of shots like that. Yeah. Um, and then the last one on here is not used very often, but we wanted to bring it up just because of how cool it is. Yeah. Tilt shift lenses. Yes. So, okay. So tilt shift lenses are kind of hard to explain and, uh, I'm not sure I totally understand it. You know, I was reading about them and I was like, okay, sure. Um, it, it covers two kinds of movements, the rotation of the lens plane relative to the image plane and that's tilt. And then the lens parallel to the image plane called shift. So so it's a little complicated. And uh, the way that I would describe this lens is that it essentially, it's really, it's used to really hone in on focus in an image. And a lot of the time you can use it to basically show, change the perspective of the image on your own. You know, without, it's, it's a really cool technique. Let's say... They'll take a shot of a city, but they'll use tilt shift, and then they'll they'll use the focus plane to focus on one building in the city, and the way and you can you know shift the perspective to make it look like it's almost a miniature. Mm-hmm. It's like a miniature city with just like yeah, with just tiny models. Yeah, the people look like little models, and you know <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's it's really fun. It's a really cool <laughs> technique, and I I wanted to bring it up because they use it in the movie Game Night. 
which is a pretty recent movie. Yes. I think it just came out 2018, maybe. Yeah, and so. yeah, and uh, in the movie they use the tilt shift lens. I think like three or four times, and it's so obvious because it's you don't see it in movies very often at all. Okay. And they use it because the movie's about board games, and so they use the lens to make them look like miniature people or miniature houses, just like on a board game. They also use it in the Colbert, Late Night with Colbert. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the opening for that, which I told my family and they said it ruined it for them. (laughs) They thought it was like all claymation or something. Honestly, I think it's cooler. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong, building a model and and that kind of stuff is awesome. (laughs) But like we we said, the tilt shift lens never gets used. And when you finally see it, it's like, whoa, look at that. It's so cool. That looks so good. Yeah. So one little thing that I wanted to mention within all of this is about why directors and cinematographers are not usually the editors of their films and why they shouldn't really be. Because when you're a cinematographer or director, you're on the set. You are working with the actors. You are working with the shots. You are directly in it, basically. And things happen on set. People get angry. People forget their lines. Things go wrong. And you remember that. That all sticks in your head. So if you were to go and sit down and try to edit through that, all you would think about while you are watching that scene is what happened that day. And that can mess you up. Yeah, you could potentially miss something else. I'm sure Robin kind of feels this a little bit. I really wish that they would have thought about that when I was making videos and films in school. (laughs) Because... That's true, and we had to do it all on our yeah. own. Yeah, no, it's it's really hard. Uh, you know, they they used this phrase when I was in school. They said you have to murder your darlings. What mm-hmm. they said, and uh, essentially, you know, sometimes things you have a really strong emotional attachment to shots, and you just you don't want to get rid of them because of that. But mm-hmm. an editor or somebody looking at it from a cold different perspective is going to see whether or not it's a good enough shot to keep in Mm -hmm. and they're going to get rid of it if they think it's not good enough exactly but because you know and and that's right i mentioned at the beginning of this episode that you the director or, or cinematographer they might be really close to the project they've had a great time filming it they it's been a passion project of theirs they've wanted to make this movie forever and they're just they're so they're so in love with what they have that they're going to want to keep all of it yeah. or, or something and like that. And they're going to remember how hard it was to get a scene. They're going to mm-hmm. remember, yeah. Yeah. you know, all exactly. the stuff they had to do to make it happen. And they, that's, that's how, that's what they're going to see. And they're right. not, they're not going to get rid of it because they are like, it's too much. It's my yeah, baby. Exactly. Right. They might be like, we spent three days on that one scene. We have to keep that yeah. scene, mm-hmm. but it it's might like, just not But fit. buddy, the scene doesn't work. Yeah. It's <laughs> a know? piece of shit. Yeah. That's why nine times out of 10, the director's cut of a movie is always longer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Almost every time. I don't think I know. I don't know of a director's cut off the top of my head that is that is close to or shorter than. <laughs> yeah, I can't the, origi- I, the theatrical. I mean, cut. it wouldn't be. There would be no point, I guess. Right. If it was yeah. shorter. Yeah, that's right? true. Yeah. Yeah. So the advantage that the editor has is that they only see what they've been given, and so then they will only they will view it as an audience member would, and so that helps get the editing done. And to make a cohesive story that will bring about the emotion that the original story should have. 
A lot of movies you may, you know, think about, you immediately may remember the director because the director is the, you know, name you hear the yeah. most. Mm-hmm. So, you know, movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, and The Shining, you all think Stanley Kubrick. Well, the cinematographer for all those movies which was John Alcott. Yeah. And so he he really put input into that too and and I mean, just look at those movies. They, they wouldn't be the same without him. No. Right. All right. So another memorable one for me is Psycho. Yeah. Yeah. So that was actually uh that was John L. Russell who did that. Yeah. Yeah. The way that the lighting it, the way the the movie is lit is a very big component of mm-hmm. it being a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And along with the music, obviously, is a very, very big part of it. And, uh, you know, I just think of the shower scene and the way the shower scene is shot. Mm -hmm. You don't really see much of the actual murder, essentially, but you see enough. She Mm -hmm. grabs the curtain as she goes down and she, you know, falls, right? And Mm -hmm. and the curtain rings snap and she, you know, you know that she has died. You Mm -hmm. know that she's been killed. You you don't need to see every little detail of it. They, it's kind of like if we bring it back to the language for a second, Mm -hmm. they, they wrote it in a way more like a, like a Tolkien way of writing it, but with (laughs) cinematography, right? They had just all the details around it that explained the situation happening, but they didn't just say, uh, she was, she was killed. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's the thing, man. Show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. In every form of storytelling, that is that is the rule. That is what you want to do. You want to you want to show us. You don't need to tell us. Exactly. What I really wanted to talk about with cinematography is Birdman, which I, you know, I feel like that's not really a hot take. Birdman has great cinematography, and I think a lot of people know that, or at least they think that. Some people might hate it, which okay, that's totally fine. I was in school when I saw it, and. And so I saw it with one of my friends. Her name is Sarah Kramer. Hopefully she's listening. But she's also she's also a photographer. And we were both studying the same thing in school. So we went and actually saw it with another photographer friend of mine, Isaac Hale. So we were, all three of us were in the theater. And, and we went to go see Birdman. And I remember I had never seen anything like it in my life. I'd never seen any movie with this kind of, this kind of visuals and the way. Have you guys seen Birdman? I have not. No, I have oh, not okay. Yet. Well, there are lots of moments where it, just these weird tracking shots, or it's like, you know, just backing up throughout these long hallways and, and you, all this weird detail and things that you're you're watching. There's a scene I think you're literally just looking down a hallway. The camera's not even moving. You're looking down, and it's just like a window and a curtain, and you're just watching it for a long period of time. Interesting. And for, yeah, for some people, it's kind of like that's boring. But, you know, I didn't think so, you know, so some people might not feel that way. But I remember walking out of the movie and Sarah turned to me and she goes, that movie was fucking wild. <laughs> I've never seen it. She, those are exact words. She's a fucking wild man. Because <laughs> it was just, we'd never seen anything like that. And it won Best Picture that year. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, just really, I mean, I just was blown away by, um, by, by the way it looked and felt it had really it was really so i love the cinematography in birdman yeah i i mentioned it before lord of the rings i just think it has amazing cinematography they use um forced perspective throughout the whole thing making the hobbits uh seem shorter than they are without using any special editing um so that's you know not necessarily 
cinematography in the same way as something like Birdman where they have these interesting shots. But, you know, it's all part of the whole movie-making process, right? Mm -hmm. And the the cinematographer on that one was uh, Andrew Lesnin. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Emmanuel Lubezki was the... Birdman, yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. Sorry, Emmanuel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The last one we'll probably talk about right now is Roma. And we're going to talk about Roma because it won 2019's Best Cinematography. And um, he also won for Best Director. Yep. And it won Best Foreign Film. It did. It won three Oscars. So, yeah. It did pretty well. So, the thing about Roma that really spoke to me as somebody who, you know, at least used to make videos about, like, photojournalism pieces and stuff like that, is that it is a movie that really acts kind of like a documentary, but, like, minus interviews. Like, imagine, like, a documentary without interviews and it's just all footage of things happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason it reminded me of that is because when you are creating a video that is just a subject, like you're doing your own short form storytelling, when you're doing that, you're by yourself. You've got one camera. Sometimes you got two cameras, maybe. I mean, you're a poor college student. And a lot of the time you don't get to tell, you don't tell the subject what to do. You just watch them in their environment and you, you know, just kind of capture them in their environment. And, uh, that is essentially, there's so many shots in Roma that really reminded me of that. Because when you don't have the ability to make a whole bunch of cuts and you don't have a team and you don't have people helping you make these scenes happen, you're not going to use as many cuts. And there are there are not a lot of, there are so many scenes in this movie that are just one cut the whole time. Mm-hmm. Not not a single, and I love it. I absolutely, I think that it, it was really effective and I felt like the storytelling, because of the visuals, the storytelling was so well done. I'm, I don't speak Spanish, but I was, I was hardly looking at the subtitles because I could figure things out just by watching these people in their environment. And it made a lot of sense to me. I could tell, you know, I could pick up little pieces about their story. And if you're used to always understanding everything someone's saying, it's going to be a little hard at first because you're going to be like, okay, I missed something. I didn't see that subtitle. Oh, I have to rewind it. You know, that kind of thing. But really, you just kind of have to just let yourself be immersed in it and kind of experience story with them. I remember my teachers telling us, you know, let your subject walk out of the frame. Let them go. Let them leave the frame. And you can hold on to the frame even though they're gone. Because the audience doesn't need you to be with the subject 100% of the time. And that's what happens a lot in Roma. There's a scene where we watch her walk into a house. She shuts the door. She's gone. She's told we don't see her at all. And we literally just watch the door as she you know, goes in and does whatever the hell. Mm-hmm. And then she comes out. And we didn't need to see what she did in there. You know, like that's the, it, w- it wasn't necessary for us to follow her. And I love that they, he didn't, you know, he understands that as a, as a cinematographer and a director, you know, that it's just, just let it happen. I, I love that. I love, you know, the slow pans across the house as everyone's getting ready for bed. You know, we don't need to go into the rooms and we don't need to, we don't need that. We can just see it as it's happening. And it's almost like you're there watching, like we were talking about, there will be blood, you know, or as Citizen Kane. I'm sorry, Citizen Kane. Sorry. Mm-hmm. 
But I also felt that way about their Wooly Blood. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the same thing in the other shot that we, or the other scene that we watched. Yeah. And so, you know, just, you don't necessarily need all to constantly be with your characters. You know, you can still just watch them and observe them. And that that's kind of how this movie feels. One of my favorite shots that I saw was the opening shot of the movie. When it, we are focused on the ground and she is washing the ground. And we do not see her, and we do not see her washing the ground. We just see the water, and we hear the sounds of the scrub brush, Mm -hmm. and we hear the hose. And the thing is, is that we've all seen somebody washing the floor before. We all know what it looks like. There is no reason for us to see it again. Mm -mm. The scene would be so much more boring if we just watched her wash the floor. Mm And even within that, it's really nice because you end up seeing like this plane yeah. go over a head and you can just just see it in the puddle, that, like the little puddle there and you see it go across the little frame of the, the yeah. patch of light that's there. So you're like, okay, it's, we're outside. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, and, and I love that the movie really makes you slow down. <coughs> mm-hmm. You know, you're used to these movies with all of these like really fast cuts and you know, it's like yeah. really intense stuff and it's just really, it makes you really be very contemplative. You know what it sounds like if, let's say a, an action movie like Avengers is just a regular book or just something written, just a basic story. Roma sounds like a poem if it's, if we're talking about cinematography as a language mm-hmm. because it's doing it in such interesting and different ways, taking the long way around like a poem would, saying it without really saying it. Mm-hmm. Roma Roma right. is is that movie version of that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because yeah. it, you know, it reminds me like there there's a uh there's a Walt Whitman poem when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed. This is the poem. And why would we say that instead of saying when lilacs last bloomed in the dooryard? Or when mm. we last had lilacs in the book. Why would, why would we say it so in such a roundabout way? Mm. It's kind of art for art's sake. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's okay to take the long way around because, you know, it's just the, the way the artist wants you to go. Talking about how Roma won some Oscars, I was looking at what other types of awards there are for cinematographers. And I found that there is an American Society of Cinematographers. And they give awards as well. And they were founded in Hollywood, actually, in 1919. So it is the 100th anniversary this year. Yay! Oh, Yay! So good how for cool them. Is that? Yeah, they originally <laughs> consisted of 15 members. These being, here we Ooh, go. Here we go. Joe August, L. D. Clausen, Arthur Edison, William C. Foster, Eugene Gaudio, Fred Leroy Granville, Walter L. Griffin, J. D. Jennings, Roy H. Klafke, Victor Milner, Robert S. Newhard. Philip E. Rosen, Charles G. Rosher, Homer A. Scott, and L. Guy Wilkie. Wow, good job, Mike. Yeah. Nice work. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Thank you. So, Toys Were Us podcast actually mentioned a movie that was actually done by Arthur Edison, who was one of the first members of the ASC. They mentioned Casablanca. 
Right. Which is a very well-known movie. And I, I, I love, uh, we were talking about Citizen Kane a little bit earlier and mm-hmm. Casablanca. And I love talking about those two because we were talking about how that lighting effect where everything was really, really bright because the films couldn't really, the film really couldn't pick up the different lighting ratios. But when, you know, it got to noir times when they were doing these noir films, it was yeah. like contrast, contrast, contrast. That's all we want. It's <laughs> all, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it. it's just so intense. And 100%. It's, yeah. And that's just one of those things. <laughs> things man it's a it's all throughout Casablanca and Citizen Kane um so the declared purpose of the ASC in their own words essentially is to advance the art of cinematography through artistry and technological progress and to cement a closer relationship among cinematographers to exchange ideas discuss discuss sorry discuss techniques and promote cinema as an art form so in essence they're they're all about education and making cinematography as best of an art as it can be. Well, then, Gad Zeus, they ought to just play this episode for the, <laughs> for the people, and we'll tell them all about it. Yeah. <laughs> Gad Zeus. Gad Zeus. Now, the only thing is, is that to be a member, it's by invitation only. Oh. Yeah. Yep. You have to have credentials. You have to have demonstrated outstanding ability in the field, and... The website says you have to have good personal character. I'm out. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um. no. It's interesting, though, because talking about Oscars versus the ASC awards that they hand out, in the last 20 years, only three films were awarded an Oscar for Best Picture, have also received the ASC Award for Cinematography oh, or the Cinematography Oscar. And they were Birdman. Slumdog Millionaire and American Beauty. Birdman. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. So the last thing I think that we want to talk about is, you know, some more suggestions. We got mm-hmm. quite a few. Yeah. And I, I think we want to elaborate a little bit on the ones that we might have mentioned already. Mm-hmm. But one of them, we, Always the Critic Podcast, good friends of ours. They suggested Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, the cinematographer for that movie was Douglas Slocomb. I absolutely, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's really a beautiful movie, and mm-hmm. you know I love. They kind of, um, it really capitalizes on you know the adventure aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's got a very adventure look to it, and I abs- I love like it. We we're talking about film noir a little bit, and it still it has a little bit of that. Just like you know that leading man, that strong leading man, you know, and like the way he's lit. You know, they use the hat to really help with the shadows on his face and kind of you know give that look. And I, so I love Indiana Jones and I love the way his look is put together because it was obviously very well thought out. So, and I think my favorite part of that movie is when all the Nazis faces melt off (laughs) Um, because the lighting in that scene is incredible. It's a really strange scene. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because everyone's got this, they got the wind blowing on their face and they're lit from below and it has that, yeah, that low key lighting that we were talking about. Right before the faces melt off. Yeah, it's low-key a great scene. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, Bang Average Movie Podcast, also, they we talked about how they mentioned Citizen Kane. Um, and also, Moulin Rouge. They used a, they, an image from Moulin Rouge. They used the scene when, they, when they're doing the Roxanne tango. I don't know if you remember that, that scene from the movie where they sing mm-hmm. Roxanne by the police. 
Nope. Yeah, but I mean, when when they showed when I saw that image, I knew exactly what movie it was from. They didn't mm-hmm. have to, you know. It's a, it, it is a very well shot scene. They're they're dancing, and we see. You know, we see their shadows on the floor, the silhouettes of the dancers, and obviously every movement is totally on point. And so, also Citizen Kane, we Greg Toland yes. is actually yeah, Marcy. I think you just mentioned him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was the cinematographer for Citizen Kane, and I think we our favorite part of Citizen Kane is the opening. It is. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> what an incredible opening! It's a it. Citizen Kane is the Citizen Kane of movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, Marcy is talking about that language and being able to, uh, you know, set a scene and talk to us without using any words. That's That does it mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know pretty much all we really need to know yeah. in the beginning yeah. of that movie. So this little movie that you've never heard of is amazing and <laughs> you should watch it. I mean... <laughs> It's a my, little indie film. <laughs> a little indie film. My absolute favorite part is that they they're showing you his estate, and it's like a very castle like looking building, and oh my god! And so then they do a transition, which it's it's like a fade, and what what they do with the transition is they the light in the window of the castle uh, stays in the same spot as it transitions to the reflection of the castle. So the castle being upside down in the water, but the light isn't still in the same. Same same spot, and and not just from the reflection, but as it establishes shots of the surrounding area, the surrounding um, sit town or whatever near the estate, it slowly gets closer to the estate. The building gets bigger yeah. within the frame. However, the light of the window is still in the same uh, f- part of the frame, and it's follows the rule of thirds. It's in the top. Yeah. Corner there, right where it feels nice to to to, to look, look at. at. Yeah. And and each shot, you know, changes, but the light stays in the same spot. And then you get real close up to the window, and the light finally goes off. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially when then it trans transfers you into the castle yeah. after the light goes out. Oh my then gosh. You go into the castle, <sighs> and, and you see it from the inside. And that shot, but but through the snow globe uh, when she walks into the room. Yes. Cool stuff. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tasty shot right Wonderfully there. written. <laughs> so the next one on here, um, another damn movie podcast. We mentioned both of their movies throughout the episode, The Phantom Thread and There Will Be Blood. Both wonderful suggestions. We watched, we mentioned the scene where the man and woman are sitting at the table and he decides that he doesn't like the asparagus that she, she prepared. She cooked it in like butter it. instead of oil. Uh, what a dick. How dare he, or she, how dare she. Yeah. But, you know, they use lighting in, in order to give us a, an immediate feeling of how we're supposed to, to react to these two characters. Mm-hmm. How we're supposed to, yeah, how we're supposed yeah. to feel about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Paul Thomas Anderson did a great job yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. And like Robin mentioned, I, first thing I said, oh, they don't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> and I think perhaps there's a phantom thread holding them together. <laughs> it's the only reason they're still together because they obviously hate each other. And they and that's all because of the cinematography. They didn't have to tell us that. Yeah. So, that's pretty dang cool. And there will be blood. We watched the two scenes or I guess it was one long scene, wasn't it? But it was two different yes. shots. One we mentioned uh with the silhouette and the train leaving the station, but the this the part before that was 
the main guy and his son sitting at a table of a restaurant in the shot was from the t- the next table with all of these businessmen sitting at it and the shot was i i guess in the middle of that table facing our characters you know things kind of getting in the way and it's not really you know they're not lit from the back or anything like that they're just kind of there and i think it's imp- it's supposed to be like that to make us feel like i think you mentioned this robin like they don't feel important you know they feel like they're being ignored Mm-hmm. By not only the other businessmen, but by the whole restaurant. Yeah, the menus are somewhat distracting. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, because they're kind of they're taking away from the main action that's happening, but it's kind of supposed to be that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple more suggestions. Um, Jeffrey Norris. With on, Midsummer. On, yeah, on Twitter he suggested Midsummer. Now uh, we have not seen Midsummer yet. Mm, because it looks it looks weird and scary. scary. <laughs> We're not big fans of scary I, things. Yeah, I don't mind some horror, but the way that one looks, I don't know, you know if I should watch it in a theater. Yeah, we watched the trailer for this one. Yeah. And, um, and as far as cinematography goes, it looks very interesting. Some really, yes. really cool mm-hmm. shots. But at first, while watching it, it kind of gave me this vibe of Get Out. Uh-huh. Mm. But then it got worse, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, it's it, it's gone beyond get out now." <laughs> so, right. So it, it you know I don't know if I'll I don't you know, know if I'll end up seeing I, that. I noticed in the trailer they use they utilize high key lighting. Mm-hmm. Everything was really bright, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they use very soft colors uh, and light colors, lots of yellows, whites, mm-hmm. kind of. And, and I think that you know it's there's definitely a very specific aesthetic to the film. And that that definitely uh, comes through in the trailer, and it and it, it's definitely in heavy contrast to heavy contrast to uh, the content of the movie, because mm-hmm. we know that something not so bright and mm-hmm. colorful is about to and happen. Even the music, it's in contrast. The music, I think, the yeah. music gives a very creepy, like, yeah. oh, something's gonna and, happen. And we, our bodies react to like you know dissonance. To things that don't necessarily fit together, and they do make us feel very icky, yeah. Without us really realizing it. The way I describe it is, it felt creepily sterile. Yeah. It you know it felt clean and bright, like like it was meant to be, you know, friendly and inviting, but it just wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> just like something is still wrong with this, and. They nailed it. So that was, I might butcher this name. We'll see. Powell Pogorzelski. Anyway. We'll go with that. All right. So Undercover Coven podcast suggested Mad Max, um, which John Seal did that movie. Yeah. And um, I have not seen the whole movie. I don't believe. Have you guys? I have mm-hmm. not. Okay. Robin has. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we watched a, a scene of that, uh, a little clip. And, yes. And there, there's a lot of action in that one, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And um, this is a really, when this movie came out, it swept the technical categories at the Oscars. I remember it won, like, yeah. sound design, sound mixing. Mm-hmm. This is, this being Mad Max design. Fury Road from yeah. 2015. Mm-hmm. Yes. And a technically beautiful sounding and looking film. Honestly, it looks incredible. It's really. I cool. really, oh, really yeah. want to see it. I mm-hmm. can't believe I haven't yet. Yeah, the absolute. The talking about color, 
the color of the sand, that bright orange mm-hmm. kind of color. And we were talking about the lighting, the high key lighting just now. More high key lighting. There's a lot of it. That and also harsh lighting as well. And because they're meant to be in the outback. Yeah. Mating. <laughs> Lots of hot sun and red sand. It's absolutely yeah. It's really beautiful. It's a really, but it's you know obviously it's it's weird for me to say that it's beautiful because there's obviously so much you know violence in it. And, you know, you've got these people in these crazy outfits mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, insane stuff. And so that was from Undercover Coven. And then at, right after them, we've got Alex Heine yeah. on Twitter. He's a friend of ours. He suggested Life Aquatic, a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. And uh, the cinematography was done by Robert Yeoman. Yep. I Go so. with it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so when we were watching scenes from Life Aquatic, you know, I immediately was like, well, this looks like a lot of other Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> he also did the Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, to, and, and I think the scene where, you know, the scene that Heine suggested specifically was, let me show let you my me boat. Let me show you my boat. Yeah. Yes. You can imagine the whole set built, you know, a couple of almost multiple stories high showing the, like, um, what do they call it? Where you slice through something in a cross section of yeah. the boat. So you can see in all these rooms. And yeah. uh, they just pan the camera through each one. There's no cuts in there. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's like a literal tour. And, and <laughs> yeah. And then when, at the beginning, actually, they start with uh, the character in the middle with a model of his boat. And then in the background is, is the cross section that we just talked about. And it feels like it's smaller. Right. Yeah. But then when mm-hmm. they pull into it, you realize that it's a full sized thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and then when they pull away from it again, it feels small. So it's like they zoomed in on this really small mm-hmm. thing, and all these little little people are walking around in this boat, but it's actually <laughs> a full size set because yeah. these are full size people. Yeah. You know, so it's a really cool uh, trick they did there. Right. Oh. So there you have yeah. it. Whoa! Yeah, that was a lot, you guys. Thanks, thanks for sticking with us. What a marathon! All right, so yes, so we have a website, blackcasediaries.com. Do we also have a drink of the week? And we do. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I didn't get to sip my drink of the week this week because it was a shot. It was a shot of cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, these two are, these two are real <laughs> proud of that one. You know, Marcy's the mastermind behind that. I was, I just got to. I'm just happy I got to watch her work. You know? Yes, you I go. cannot <laughs> wait to put it on our Instagram, uh, Black Case Diaries podcast. And the recipe is going to be on our Patreon. Yes, no. so you should check it out yeah. because it is super delicious. Thank and you, I Patreon followers. Want to make a couple more? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, Patreon. We are on Patreon. Yeah. You can find us uh, on that through our website or Patreon.com slash Black Case Diaries. And, and yeah. Yeah. Thank you to Joel Thomas, Anthony, and John Denario. Uh, I guess that is another case closed. Woo. Yeah. Woo. And watch Roma, everybody, and Birdman. Yes. Well, well. And, and I'm Lord just of the Rings. <laughs> if you want to learn more about them or you want to apply some of the stuff that you've learned in this episode, <laughs> then yes, go watch those movies. And soon. you know, if there's something about film that you want us to talk about, tweet at us and let us know. We'll, yeah. And we will definitely talk about it with you for you, whatever. All right. All right. Well, 
We love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.